Welcome to the Political Risk Podcast, an independent podcast focused on geopolitical risk that serves decision makers in specialty insurance markets, reinsurance and beyond. I'm your host, David Bennion, and I'm joined by best-selling author, Michelle Walker. A strategic advisor and global economic policy expert, Michelle coined the term grey rhino as a call to decision makers to improve how they respond to obvious, probable, impactful risks. The grey rhino has been referenced in countless governmental and international policy debates, from the World Economic Forum to NATO, and by US senators writing to the US Federal Reserve. Also, in a Japanese jazz single, and by K-pop phenomenon BTS. But with the contents of this podcast in mind, perhaps most notably by China's leader, Xi Jinping, who has referred to the Grey Rhino in his speeches and even displays the book on his office bookshelf. Michelle is founder of the Chicago-based advisory firm Grey Rhino & Company. A former media and think tank executive, she draws on decades of experience in global finance and economics. She works at the nexus of policy, behavioural science and business strategy. Michelle's four books include the influential global bestseller, The Grey Rhino, and its sequel, You Are What You Risk. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Michelle, The Grey Rhino has so many applications. Just a cursory Google search brings up results as diverse as cyber attacks, climate change, the US debt downgrade, semiconductor manufacturing. Are you also adding geopolitics to the Grey Rhino's lengthening list of applications? Yes. Well, of course, as you know, the Grey Rhino is the big, obvious, scary thing coming at you that you're probably not doing as good a job of dealing with as you like. And for quite some time, I've been looking at a, a triad of Grey Rhinos, the financial fragilities, whether it's it's debt overhangs or asset bubbles or interest rate cycles and and climate change, which is closely related And for a while, I'd been looking at inequality, and that inequality has spilled over into all sorts of domestic political and geopolitical tensions. And right now, it seems like geopolitical tensions are keeping more and more CEOs and risk managers and policymakers up at night than in quite some years. Well, we're headed into 2024, which is a US election year. Are you concerned about the US domestic political environment? Absolutely. And the past few years, a number of risk analysts and prognosticators have been looking very closely at the political situation in the United States as a a very high risk factor for all of the other geopolitical risk factors. And of course, we've already started having presidential candidate debates, which is crazy. I think we're just going to be exhausted by the time the election comes around next year. But you know, election season tends to be silly season when candidates try to say the most outrageous things to get the most attention during the primaries and to get as much news time as they can. And they also try to sound tough, which means uh, chest thumping when it comes to uh, real and imagined adversaries. And uh, people tend to talk a lot about hot button issues, uh, whether it's immigration or countries that agitate particular political constituencies or things. So it's often a very dangerous and volatile time. So you connect that with what's going on at a number of flashpoints around the world, 
and the number of opportunities for policy mistakes is quite high. And then you multiply them together. And as in the English language for the word for a group of gray rhinos is a crash, uh, I think it's quite appropriate to apply in this situation as well, because when you have multiple things going wrong at once, it's not just one plus one plus one equals three. You often get magnified events and huge surprises, the sort of things that you can't predict that the black swan refers to. So as I often say, a crash of gray rhinos is behind every black swan. We can see roughly at least the outline of the gray rhinos. And so we need to do everything that we can to keep those gray rhinos from charging. Otherwise, there are going to be all sorts of things that we really don't have the tools and the foresight to work through in a smart way. Moving to US foreign policy, how does the gray rhino relate to the relationship between the US and China? Well, as you know, uh, China is very big on my mind. When the gray rhino came out there in 2017, it immediately became a bestseller and started creating headlines. And I've almost lost count of the number of times that I've been to China since 2017, except during the, the pandemic, of course. I was last there in, uh, in April and uh, often get questions from the Chinese media. And U.S.-China relations are on everyone's mind there and here. And uh, I think a lot of other countries around the world who look at this very important relationship and the potential for good if we can turn things around and really cooperate on things like climate change and calming down some of the trade drama and try to collaborate on things like the rapid development of technology, the need for global collaboration around AI, around tech standards, around data standards, since data, of course, goes across borders much more fluidly than uh, most of us think about, and it's, it's hugely important. But there's also a lot of potential for damage if we don't turn relations around to a better direction particularly in an election year in the United States, where a lot of candidates are trying to outdo each other on how tough they are on China. And, you know, in China, people pay a lot of attention and there's often a response. And when both countries are pushing each other's buttons, there's a lot of room for policy mistakes. But as I often say, a weak China is not actually in U.S. interests and a weak U.S. is not in China's interests. Strong and stable economies in both places are the best outcome for both countries and for the world. And uh, I think there have been definitely some, some efforts at the recent uh, APEC meeting to try to dial down some of the tensions and focus on the areas where we can have constructive collaboration but there are always going to be missteps and gaffes, you know, as there was at the end of the uh, the APEC summit. But we are seeing lots more regular meetings between senior U.S. and senior Chinese officials, which is very, very promising. So I think you know we can't take that relationship for granted. I think that the potential for getting it right is huge and the potential damage from getting it wrong is beyond what we can even think of. 
With all the political talk of de-risking and decoupling, what do you think this means from a business perspective? I tend to be on the side of engagement, no matter what. And I think that the most possibility for constructive change comes from engagement. And this whole debate over de-risking versus decoupling is kind of nonsensical to me. Because, I mean, you know, risk is a choice. People often think about it in very different terms. Like, we don't even share the same definition of risk. But for me, uh, taking a risk means making a choice, which means there are two sides of something. So de-risking, does that mean get rid of the bad risks, but also the good risks? I mean, it just it's not even clear to me what that term means. And I, I suspect that that's on purpose. Uh, there's lots of talk of decoupling with China in supply chains. But what's actually happened is those supply chains have diversified and become more complex. And often China is sending the first part of the supply chain to a third country. And so we're seeing more trade with countries like Mexico, which I just saw, uh, if, if this is true, just surpassed China as the biggest trade partner. So you're seeing changes in patterns of supply chains. I think in general, diversification of supply chains makes a lot of sense. Uh, apart from any geopolitical issues, we're seeing more natural disasters. We're seeing more interruptions of all sorts of kinds. And so diversification of supply chains makes as much sense as diversification of your financial portfolio. It's pie in the sky to think that we could completely or a majority decouple because it's just the ties are too deep and strong. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, the idea that countries with McDonald's don't go to war to each other has been disproven. But I do think that the general principle behind that, that countries that have strong economic and business relationships with each other are less likely to go to war with each other. And I think a lot of the talk you hear right now about, oh, we're already in a third world war and, and China's part of it is nonsense, is not particularly constructive. I don't think that this hawkish tone makes sense on any side. I think there's so many things that we can focus on where there is opportunity for cooperation. And those are where we need to be focusing. I was just seeing some of the reports from NVIDIA and seeing that they're expecting significant losses on an ongoing basis from the, the export prohibitions to China. And at the same time, you're seeing lots and lots of more technological breakthroughs from China, which people in the West tend to dismiss. But I do think that eventually this prohibition on certain exports is not going to have the effect that it is intended to. And I think that it's going to have negative effects on cooperation between the two countries. So I think the role for business is to engage constructively, you know, in their own supply chains, if there's something going on that they don't like. I think it's imperative for businesses to ensure that third party suppliers, that everyone who is in their supply chain is taking seriously human rights and environmental laws and things like that. So companies do need to do that and not try to wash their hands of it. At the same time, uh, I think it's important for them to be public about the importance of constructive diplomatic 
engagement. And there are lots of cynics out there, and I'm not rosy-eyed, but I do think that engagement is the best path forward in 99% of the cases. So, Michelle, what's your take on the rather dramatic fall in foreign direct investment into China we've witnessed in recent months? I think that there are a lot of political reasons behind that. I also think that we are seeing a cyclical change in the Chinese economy when for so many years, uh, growth was so strong that businesses were just falling all over themselves to get in. And just as any country that has grown based on debt, you're going to have to see a change in the business cycle at some point. It's happened in Japan. It's happened you know, in the US over the years. It's happened in Europe. It's happened every places. Economic cycles are what they are. And China, to its credit, has made a concerted effort to keep its debt situation from spiraling out of control. When I go to China, there's lots of talk about uh, Minsky moments, you know, the point at which debt becomes unsustainable and uh, things go out of control. Their use of the gray rhino metaphor and framework in China has been applied in part to this question of financial risk, of over-indebtedness, of asset bubbles. And they've done something that I think took a lot of courage, which is to say, hey, we are going to let the air out of this bubble before it gets even bigger and explodes out of our control. And I think a lot of the Western media has really misunderstood that. Now, obviously, it's not going perfectly smoothly, and it couldn't have been expected to go very smoothly. But I think that Chinese policymakers were right to look at the debt dynamics and say, hey, the sooner we get this onto a sustainable path, the better off we are. And you're seeing a lot of policy adjustments along the way. And going back and forth between China and the US, I often would get a sense of whiplash. You know, talking to senior economic policymakers and successful business people there, I'd get very, very serious, thoughtful questions. And from the media as well about economic policy, about asset bubbles, about economic cycles, about the relationship between financial fragilities and climate change and inequality. And I, I speak fairly frequently about climate change there. And so I get a lot of these very thoughtful questions. And then I come back to the United States and the attitude often is asset bubble. What asset bubbles? Let's pump some more air into these asset bubbles that don't really exist. So I think that there's a very different attitude towards financial risk, towards risk in general in China, a lot more awareness and a lot more willingness to step up to it. And at the same time, a lot more ability because of the difference in form of government. But I do think that China's government is considerably more responsive to the people than most Westerners give it credit for just as I think the U.S. and other Western governments often are less responsive than we give them credit for. You just have to look at some of the opinion polls in the United States as to what public opinion is on all sorts of issues, from gun control to health care to all kinds of things. And then you look at the decisions that Congress is making, 
And I'm sure seeing some of the statistics that show that our representation is not equal in the United States, that some parts of the United States are much more heavily represented, even though they've got smaller populations. So it's really not one vote, one person here. And that's why you see often this big gap between the decisions in Congress in Washington and what the public opinion polls say in the U.S. And democracy is messy, and that's often a good thing, but it often means that making some of the harder decisions is not as easy as it should be. And that's why you see a lot of silly season discussion and cultural wars and nonsensical things rather than Congress really getting down to work and saying, hey, our infrastructure is not what it should be. Hey, our education system is failing. Hey, there are big parts of the country that are not engaged in the economy the way they ought to be. Hey, we've got this tax situation where a lot of the very richest people are paying a much smaller share of their income than other people with much smaller disposable incomes. And that is getting in the way of economic growth. No political system is perfect, but I think that it's worth every country looking and seeing how their own system could be improved, how their own decisions could be improved, and how the capacity of their policymakers could be improved. On the perception of risk, whether that's from a monetary policy or to political volatility or the culture wars, the QE of outrage is a term that you've used before. Are we living in an age of outrage? Absolutely. Well, of course, coming from a financial markets background and economic policy background, I've spent a lot of time talking about quantitative easing in the financial markets and the unintended side effects of financial quantitative easing, money printing, loose monetary policy. And uh, I think we've got a parallel in the political situation. There has been a quantitative easing of outrage in that you turn on the news at night and whether it's Fox or MSNBC, you are seeing people spewing out outrage about what somebody said, tearing apart some tiny little statement or any sort of thing that the opposite political side said. There have been a number of polls showing that Crazy high percentages of Americans believe that the opposite political party is a serious threat to the country. And if you think about a country being made of people who come together to share the burden of protecting each other from certain shared risks, if you can't even agree on what the basic risk is, it's hard to argue that you are one country. And We've heard about Red America and Blue America, and that's quite dangerous. Um, and you'll you'll hear people sometimes talking about any politician with uh, just a general feeling of disgust, but you can't get them to pin down any particular reason, any particular policy thing. It's just, oh, well, just, you know, you know, whether it's the Clintons or Trump or Biden or Marjorie Taylor Greene and and, you know, some of these people, you know, the latter of which I think is is not really the model I would like to see of how an elected official behaves. But all too often people are focusing on the outrage rather than on what they have in common and what we should be 
working together to achieve. Let's move on to the geo in geopolitics, to geographic as well as cultural influences. Was this important to you when you wrote You Are What You Risk? So You Are What You Risk really grew out of the Grey Rhino from questions people would ask me on the road. And one of the big things was this whiplash effect between China and the US. When I would go to China, people really knew what I was talking about. They connected immediately. It's been a huge bestseller there. When I go in and out of events, I need people with me because there's a surge of people who want autographs and selfies. And you know, it's really gratifying, but really surprising. And so I asked people, I said, well, you know, what is it about why the great rhino has taken hold in China? And the best explanation I got was from someone who said, you gave us a way to talk about something that was already on our minds. And so I started looking at a lot of the research on risk perceptions and differences between countries, between cultures. And it's absolutely fascinating. There's even some research showing that different languages predict how you're going to save money or see other risks, depending on how they they use the tense in the language. And I also looked at Ipsos polling agency has a misperceptions index, which measures the difference between how likely something is to happen by whatever empirical methods that they use and how likely people think it is. And it also measures people's confidence in their response. And often the people in countries that were most confident about their response were the most likely to be the farthest off from the correct answer. Similarly, the Lloyd's Register Foundation has a wonderful, wonderful project, the World Risk Poll, that looks at countries' experiences of losses and their fear of experiencing that loss in the future. And they look at the gap and the sort of the worry index. And it's fascinating to see how different it is all around the world. Some of it is, as you might expect, some of the poorest countries are also the the most likely to experience certain losses, and they're also the most worried. That makes a ton of sense. But on other issues, it's all over the place. And there are differences based on religions, on cultures, particularly between collectivist and individualist cultures, also on the differences between how people perceive and respond to risks as individuals versus when they're in a group. In Western cultures, often when people are in groups, they are more likely to conform to, say, gender stereotypes than if they're on their own. And so that really said to me, that a large part of the decisions that we make, the risks that we take, are influenced by things we're not even aware of. So that's why it was so important to me to look at these cultural influences. And I looked at countries as well as people as a combination of your innate personality or your culture, your lived experience or your history, the risks that you've taken, the things that have worked out, the things that haven't, the shocks that you've experienced, And then the third part, which is where I spend the most of my time with clients and thinking about, which is what are the processes, the habits, the policies, the environment that you can create 
to encourage making good risk decisions and discourage the bad ones, you know, to encourage more innovation or education, entrepreneurship, and to discourage the moral hazard, the speculation, the crime, and also the risk of inertia, because doing nothing is more of a risk than most people give it credit for. It's fair to say that different countries then have very different risk perceptions. Absolutely. And they're completely different sets of policies. You know, it could be around, you know, around bankruptcy, around access to credit, around how education is financed. You know, some countries have funds that support small businesses or startups and others don't. And so it's really a big, a big ecosystem. And some countries have a much greater fear of failure, which of course means that you're not going to have as much of an innovative culture. And other countries coddle people too much. I was uh, speaking with a Danish friend who was talking about how you don't see as many of these super big hyper growth countries in Scandinavia or across Europe as you do in, say, the US or China. And it's really interesting. I and mean, people have a different idea of what's enough, of whether to take hyper risks in order to get hyper returns. And then, as we often see, uh, hyper crashes. And it's a different set of values in different places and different correlations between your own values and those of the people around you. And there's no single right answer, but I think that there's a right answer for each person, for each organization, for each country. And being aware of what that right answer is, is quite important. You know, companies in a lot of places are required to have a risk appetite statement. You know, how, how much risk are you willing to take? And with that, I think having something is important. Some of those companies have complete problem statements that don't really mean anything. Other ones have actually thought about it and used that as a part of their guidance for the risks that they'll take, for their strategies, for the way they treat people, for the risk umbrella that they provide for their employees or even for their contractors. Uh, so there's no right answer, but there is a right conversation to be had and not nearly enough companies or leaders or policymakers are having that conversation. And that's part of why I wrote You Are What You Risk. And it's part of the conversation that the Grey Rhino has already sparked around the world and that is uh, continuing to grow. There is pricing risk inherent within this, right? I mean, pricing is subjective, more subjective when you have potentially very different perceptions between counterparties involved in risk transfer, for example. A risk pricing is such a rich area for conversation because pricing is, of course, not something that's static. It's, it's where the buyer and the seller meet, and it's a numeric representation of that. And our economies are based on this idea that you can come up with an objective risk price. And of course, insurance is based on that, actuarial tables, historical information. But of course, some of those actuarial tables are changing a lot more these days than uh, they might have in the past. I mean, of course, with health things and the longevity, COVID-19 had uh, quite an impact with climate change what used to be a hundred year storm now happens every two years or every five years. And so a lot of these numbers that we chose to represent certain levels of risk are not as accurate as we might think. 
or in financial markets. We're seeing huge distortions because of our uh, old friend quantitative easing and now quantitative tightening. And uh, you look at how moods shape markets. My good friend Peter Atwater has done some great work on this, saying that you know social mood affects markets. That affects the price. The price is a function of perception and it's not nearly as objective as we'd like to think. And of course, if you're trading volatility, if you are looking for mispricing in the market, you can make a lot of money off of that. And I think it's why certain parts of the financial world love the idea of a black swan, because they love the idea that people aren't going to see things and you're going to see a lot of volatility and ways to make money off of that. But I do think that a reasonably accurate sense of risk pricing is essential for markets to function and not even as much financial markets, but markets for goods and services, which is what businesses rely on and what consumers rely on and what broader economies rely on. It's why we're seeing so much debate right now about inflation, about the sources of it, the cures for it, what's the right, quote unquote, level of inflation. And thinking back to the great financial crisis, a big part of that problem was that prices based on credit ratings had very little to do with reality. You look at the ratings of all of these subprime mortgages, incredible percentages were investment grade, even high investment grade. You look also at the bank instabilities that we're seeing right now, the, the problems last spring with the Silicon Valley Bank and the others, that also had to do with risk pricing. You know, They held large numbers of treasury bonds and other government assets in their capital reserves. And they priced them at what they bought them for instead of marking them to market as traded securities would be under this myth that they wouldn't have to sell them. And of course, when you saw more withdrawals than you expected and they had to start selling some of these, they all of a sudden had to recognize those losses. And this whole idea of capital reserves and a cushion and rainy day funds just disappeared. So risk pricing is part of so much of our lives, and that affects insurance, it affects financial assets, it affects you know, real estate as a hybrid financial and physical asset. And so if you don't get risk pricing reasonably right, you don't have a functioning economy. And we're seeing so many warped risk prices out there that it's making it very hard for a lot of businesses to make good decisions. And it's charging a sort of an uh, uncertainty tax or ambiguity tax, the, the we don't know what the heck's going on tax. So I'm so glad you asked about risk pricing because it is, I think, one of the questions that is not getting enough attention these days. In August, you wrote an article for Barron's about the Fitch downgrade of, of US debt, calling it what happens when we ignore the obvious. Was that a good example of a credit agency getting it right? Absolutely. And I think Fitch did the right thing. They got a lot of heat for it, but but I do think it was the right call because, you know, you look at the numbers, you look at the fact that the US came within a hair's breadth of default for no good reason other than our political dysfunction. And you can't say that a country is the gold standard of creditworthiness if you have its elected officials, elected lawmakers 
making stupid decisions out of sheer spite for the other party and desire to make headlines for being the most outrageous person. Way too often, credit rating agencies are too slow to react to realities in the market and in economic situations and circumstances. And some of that has to do with how they're compensated. You know, there's a strong incentive for them to be friendlier to the entities they rate than those entities might deserve. But I do think that if credit rating agencies were more proactive, we would see bubbles starting to recede sooner. We would see smaller financial crises. We would see a lot fewer really unhappy investors, though maybe a lot more unhappy volatility investors. And we're back onto this question of debt within the US and the Chinese economies. How do you think our portrayal of China and the US compare for this issue? There's a narrative in the Western media that likes to take whatever development that happens in China and talk about how much better our system is than theirs, that I think is often a flawed narrative. I mean, I think it's inevitable with any kind of bubble that eventually you're going to have to work it out. And the real estate bubbles are something that Chinese economic policy makers have been worried about for quite some time. I think we are starting to see now just how far that reached across the economy to provincial government finances, to everybody who depended on that and to broader economic growth. But we have a financialized bubble of our own in the U.S. economy. Lots and lots of money that's gone into paper bubbles instead of the real economy. So every country has its very own form of dysfunction. It's uh, what is it like Tolstoy said that the all happy families are alike and every unhappy family is uh, is its own. I've just butchered that, but but you know what I mean. So I think that China was right to recognize that the property bubble was getting out of hand. They have not handled it completely smoothly, but I think that to have a smooth shrinking of the bubble is an unrealistic expectation. So it's something that was going to be difficult, but I think the calculation is that if they didn't try to let the air out of the bubble now, it was going to be even worse down the road. And I think that they were right in doing so, even though they're now dealing with some of the unintended side effects, unexpected side effects, some that are bigger than they expected. But I think this whole idea that you don't have to wait for a bubble to pop by itself is something that Western policymakers could learn from. And so the lesson is not, oh, China screwed it up. The lesson is, this is really hard. And it was inevitable that China at some point was going to have to unwind some of the debt dynamics. And I think that there are some debt dynamics in the United States that we haven't yet begun to deal with. I hope you've enjoyed that conversation. Now, as we head into the holiday season with Christmas rapidly approaching, this has been the last episode of the Political Risk Podcast for 2023. 
Thank you for listening and hope you can all take a well-earned break over the holidays. I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'll see you back in January. I've been your host, David Benyon, and my guest was Michelle Wooker. Production was by Peter McGill, and my cousin Lawrence Durkin provided the music. <laughs>